Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Hot Dogs and Caviar. Boing. Uh, Hello, Tarver King in the house tonight. Of course, it's Nate and I. Plus, Hello, uh, please. we finally got a hold of. We finally got TK back in the building. Um, tonight's gonna be a quick one. None of us have a lot of time, and uh, you'll notice that our levels are a little weird, and my voice doesn't sound well. I mean, never sounds that great, but it sounds even worse. Uh, when I was editing the last episode, I noticed that um, my uh, level was way off from Nate's, and my mic was sounding crappy. Uh, and then when I was setting up today, I noticed that that's because my mic has outright stopped working. So it wasn't even engaged the last time I was doing this. Now I blame set- COVID. Our setup is so our setup is so rinky dink and ghetto that uh, I can't, we don't, none of us have any monitoring. We can only hear ourselves from our own voices. We can't hear ourselves in the mix. So the levels are going to be a little weird. Apologize in advance. I'll fix it as best I can with compression. And Tarver promised not to be as loud. But uh, if, the episode, this episode, if this episode sounds a bit whack, please understand that we know what went wrong. Uh, <laughs> and I've already, I've already ordered a new bike. It'll be here on Monday. And we'll be back to sounding our normal level of unprofessional and shitty, as opposed to tonight's increased level of unprofessional and shitty. Fair enough, y'all? Fair. Well said. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> let's get into this. Uh, Nate's going to start us off with some reader questions. <laughs> Okay, so we got a couple listener questions. Uh, I can't remember who sent what. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I work harder than an ugly stripper. What do you want me to tell you? Uh, <laughs> uh, that might be my uh, quote of the year for uh, 2022. I know it's early, but I'm going to go ahead and hey, start it off with a banger. <laughs> All right, so quick little poll. I uh, had a question on good ways to cook Octo. Um, okay. I, I like to do it low temp. I like to do it at uh, 77 Celsius. So that's about. Can I pause you? I'm so sorry. What is an octo? Octopus. octopus sorry. Oh, octopus. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Carry sorry. On. Sorry. Octopus. Sorry. Well, that's because um, I, a lot of restaurants will you uh, abbreviate octopus. You say order it an octo. But I know from experience that when Tarver orders it, uh, an octopus while he's explaining, he goes order it puss. <laughs> so that's that's why he didn't get it. By the way, guys, Tarver's laughing because this is true. At the Woodlands, at, at the Woodlands, the expo call for octopus was order in two puss. Stop dragging your puss, Jesse. <laughs> up on the line. Uh, I mean, like this this is this is an old thing. Like uh, this could double for our funny story because, like, I worked at a place where we had a dish called the Super Nachos, and it was a double sized portion of nachos. Uh, and the abbreviation was Snatch. S N A C H. <laughs> and then if you got a regular order of nachos that wasn't the double size order, it wasn't just a regular nachos. It was a half snatch. <laughs> but I think the funniest one I ever heard was at this place that did uh, ribs. And if you ordered a half rack, the expo call was order in one boob. It's <laughs> pretty good. I mean, it's, it's really stupid, but it's like a fun kind of stupid. It's fun stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. Sorry. Uh, so, so I like to. So I like to so do back to, the, uh, back to the highly mature technical discussion. Okay. So just to start it off, um, I like to do a five percent salt brine for two hours. Um, I always cut the head and beak out before I cook it. I've never found a good use for the octo heads. I just. I've stuffed them. I've ground them. I've done all kinds of crap. I just can't get over them. Um, and then I cook the tentacles, uh, 77 C for five hours, or I cook them confit with like lots of aromatics at 350 with plastic and foil over the top of a hotel pan for two hours. What's what about a, you? What do you guys do? What's 77 Celsius in Fahrenheit? I'm trying to do conversion. Uh, 170. Head. 170. Cool. Um, 
Turmeric, 77 Celsius is exactly the same temp. Yeah. But I do. Yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, that's in. the money one. Yo. I've done it at 85 for two uh, two or three hours. That's pretty good too, if you're a little tight on time. But you know, I have actually not worked with a lot of octopus in my career. Um uh so I I've I'm not sure I've ever cooked a big one. Isn't that weird? Do you want to hear something like you're not you that probably weird. Won't ever want to talk to me ever again, but like I stopped cooking octopus. Dude, a lot of and people I, are so, like yeah, really hard. against it, man. Dude, they're they're amazing creatures. Like I'll I like I, I'm not they saying are. like I'll never eat it again, and like I'm not saying I'll never cook it again, but like I, I just avoid it now. Like they're just they're just incredible. One of the chefs that I work with won't eat it for this for the same reason. I, yeah, uh, there's I'm, a country in the European Union that just ban it for being illegal. Sentient creature. Sentient yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I don't know. That kind of blurs the line. It's like I get it, but to put it into law, I I get it. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I'm still yeah. an omnivore. I'll eat anything. If food's controversial, like foie gras or horse, I've never had any kind of problem with it. Uh, I've had some like life changing moments with octopus before, like, and I mean eating it, not like playing with them in the ocean or anything. I mean like eating it. Like, I don't think I remember. Octopi- I remember I don't being think octopi- in Mexico. Like people at all. <laughs> no i mean pigs are really intelligent and we eat the shit out of them we eat yeah. the shit out of pigs man yeah, yeah. no i'm I, I understand why people don't want to work with it that's not my uh not yeah my that's area. fine i respect the hell out of that but i'm still it I'm was still a question a, and you know yeah no yeah. I'm, I'm i you know tarver i totally respect that uh i absolutely just don't, i just don't work with octo much because i've never been a cook or a chef at an italian or a spanish restaurant and it just doesn't come up that often in other western cuisines so yeah. like Doesn't, my, my yeah. resume is my resume is mostly french uh so i mean the thing is i know we use it occasionally at the woodlands but i was never the guy that cooked it um so i don't have a good long term if, if i was going to cook an octopus i would have called one of you guys and been like hey what, what do we do i can't remember yeah. ever doing it in a pressure cooker have you guys yeah uh, we did it at woodlands man yeah, we did it at Woodlands a couple Does times. Like, we, I mean, we went through the whole thing with like putting like wine corks in there. Yeah, and stuff. Well, I didn't really do anything. Yeah, but, no, like, we, we we already we covered that on a, a previous episode. That the wine cork thing. Oh yeah, okay. straight up. Oh, myth. Okay. Well, one of one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had with octopus was in Mexico. Octopus out of the water on a grill and then off the grill with chili oil, and that's it. Like you know, it's just like with most. Um, pretty much like most stuff what's that rule like eight or 80 like under eight yep. seconds over 80 minutes you know yep. like uh, yep yeah like uh octopus that's like, like the that's like the prime example of octo i, I learned yes i learned it as 30 30 30 or 30 as in under 30 seconds or more than 30 minutes but it's the same idea and it's the same uh, idea. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's depending like, on size and stuff but it was like a young it wasn't baby but it was a young octopus right out of the ocean onto a grill with like oh, like a wood fire like it was a wood fire thing on the beach and then like putting in a bowl like chopping it up putting in a bowl with chili oils cilantro and a lime and like holy shit holy shit it was like unbelievable like if, if Shri ever listens to this that she was vegetarian at the time for like 17 18 years and like that was one of the things that 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 made her into a carnivore it was so good wow nice that's that's yeah. interesting yeah that sounds spectacular you know the thing that drives me crazy about octopus like in a good way uh, like one of the reasons i can't stop eating because i just discovered this food a little while ago have you guys ever had the little tiny baby octopi that they use in japanese food yes those are so they're like they're the size of the end of your thumb Mm -hmm. and they do this nigiri oh not that small no they do this nigiri and it's like it's just a little 
piece of nigiri with a piece of um like a collar of uh nori around it and then they put like just one of those little tiny like octopi or sometimes even like two cut in half stuffed in there and they're they're braised somehow and then they're dressed with like either i think they're soy braised there's a lot of their yeah of i had them. the one i had was like barbecue kind of kind of yeah, kabayaki kind of thing exactly going on. there was some sweet soy dude going on, and i popped it in my mouth I ordered it on a whim. I was just like, you know, every once in a while you get, I, I got what I like. I like my escalara. I like my spicy tuna roll. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty basic bro when it comes to sushi. Uh, although I do like the fried shrimp, shrimp heads at Kobe. God, I miss that place. Uh, but I ordered, yes. it, I ordered it just to check it out. And I've never liked the big octopus sushi because the nigiri always has a really big piece on it. And the Japanese don't cook it very tender. So you're always choking on this giant flap. It's of pretty like tough. Cold octopus. It is tough. But it's like little, jerky. I tried the yeah. baby octopi just on a whim. I only got one order, so two pieces of nigiri. I ate one. D took one look and was like, "I can't do that." So I ate the other one. And uh, with her, it wasn't about <laughs> their intelligence. She just thought it was gross. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's my new favorite thing, and I haven't been back to that same sushi place yet. But I look for it all the time, and I don't find it, so I'm obsessed with it. I have to learn how to make it. Uh, not necessarily the sushi rice part. It didn't need to be nigiri. Just those little tiny barbecued octopi. I just want to eat a big bowl of them with a pitcher of beer and like watch uh, sports. And uh, or that wrestling. sounds incredible, man. That I gotta say really that. Good. Really good. You guys peel the tentacles on the big guys. Do you skin them? And I do. Yeah, I've, ne- I've never. I, I I've do. Never, I've never I like to leave the suckers on them, but yeah, I don't. I don't I've never the suckers cooked on them, but I definitely yeah, yeah. cleaned them. I've but definitely the back, cleaned them. The for back you guys. side of it. If it's a big, if it's a big boy, if it's yeah, like a big, the big boys, I do. Yeah, you can kind of feel and tell whether or not you need to clean them. Like, yeah. It's, you guys know well, why hope that answers your question. You guys know why they get so tough, <laughs> huh? You guys know why they get so tough. It's super cool. No, tell me like, the way they move. Cause like, think about it. Think about the way meat grain works. Like your, your bicep, the grain runs like that. Grain tenses moves your arm up, right? That's a bicep. No, no, Look at that thing. It reminds me. I need to get some fried chicken tomorrow. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, so octopi need to be able to bend their tentacles in all directions. Uh-huh. So the way they work it, it's, it's such a crazy evolutionary design. It's thin sheets of me- muscle, like paper thin sheets with grains, but the, they go, the grains go across each other. Kind of like so cardiac muscle? La- layer after layer. I'm not really know much about cardiac muscle, but like layer after layer of, gra- of grain, but the grains alternate at 90 degrees. So it doesn't have a grain. That's why you got to cook it so carefully because there's no way to cut it where it'll be tender. Really? That's fascinating. Yeah. So they're just kind of like lay, like layered layered up. It's the like like, con- the, like like a thin tube of muscle where the grain runs one way with another thin tube of muscle where the grain runs the other way all the way out. So they That have, sounds like heart muscle, man. So they have torque in every direction. Like they can bend their arms Ooh. in any direction they want and be strong in every any direction they want. Fascinating. That is I, I, wicked cool. No idea where I read that. No idea. Uh, I've never I, heard that before in my life. So like kind of almost like the layers of an onion or like a, a heart of palm or something like that. Yeah, mm. it's just it's layer after layer. But the way that the, but the grains run contradictory to each other so that it's basically like imagine if you had a bicep that could bend your arm the other way and a bicep like if imagine if a bicep could bend your arm with full strength in every direction so they can cling That's on to fascinating. stuff. It's fascinating. It's crazy. They're that incredible cool. creatures, dude. Speaking of stuff, like, I'll kill and eat the shit out of some cuttlefish, though. Those things scare the shit out of me. I don't care how smart <laughs> they are. <laughs> they're, they're definitely monsters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um, fucking love cuttlefish, dude. I'll eat those things till I'm dead, dude. They're so good. 
Well, mm-hmm. let's let's keep this thing moving because uh, we said we were going to do it in a pretty limited amount of time today. All is right, we, I got we, we all got an octo. Yeah, I cool. think we answered the question. Let's keep I it got, going. I got one specifically for Tarver, and I'm sure Jesse knows something about it too. But we got a specific question. Could you give like a little synopsis or like a little like brief overview of like what Appalachian cooking is? Like that was a specific question yeah. we got. Yeah. All right. I was so, like, oh, Tarver. <laughs> yeah. This this is a hard one because like it d- depends on which state along the Appalachian, think of the Appalachian Trail. Like it, it touches Georgia all the way up to Maine. But there are certain states of that Appalachia region, like the Appalachian Trail, um, that are completely engulfed in it. West Virginia, Virginia. I mean, there's parts of Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina. Like mm-hmm. if you were to say one word in my opinion um of what appalachian cooking revolves around i would say poverty and i don't mean that in a bad way at all some of the best food in the world comes from struggle um a lot of appalachian cooking it revolves around foraging sumac is a big thing um you know morels ramps all that kind of stuff but um i I would say i guess what's the exact question like how do you define it off the land Living off the land, like knowing your neighbors, I mean, it's it has a lot to do with communal. Kith, also, yeah, kith, kith and kin, man, that's kind of a big thing. I'd like to weigh in. Uh, geographical isolation is a, a big part of it. Yeah. if you're on the if you're on the mountain, it's hard to get down. So it's a lot of eating what's around, eating what's close to you. Uh, eat, like basic staples. A wild game is huge. Uh, yeah. R- Riverfish, um, fiddlehead ferns. Back to the foraging thing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's there's like staple cuisines that come from like places around the world that have been through struggles and they've create, come up with like iconic dishes. I mean, like finocchione in Italy. I mean, like you could you could talk for hours on that. I mean, but like poverty cuisine is, is is my thing, man. Blood sausage. Yeah. Blood, blood sausage. Is, blood sausage is what the pig farmer makes because he sold all the pork. Yeah, the difference that and, and compared to a lot of other places in the world, uh, as compared to Appalachia, is that um there are iconic things like apple stack cakes i mean like there's so many things that like vary from family to family um or from place to place like there could be the same there's no aoc doc regulation for appalachian cooking but there's like so there's a lot of leeway and people take it you know take advantage of that and kind of you know do their own version of a lot of things you know like the slaw dog i mean you kind of consider like appalachian cooking i just have one today I mean, the slaw dog. Is, is, is there a lot of? Oh, go ahead. I was, I'm, from, I'm from North Carolina, and that's that's kind of how slaw, how dogs are done in North Carolina. Yeah. If you go to a national chain, it'll just be regular hot dog stuff. But if you go to a local local hot dog place, then hot dog with coleslaw is the way they want it, and they make the coleslaw. Here's 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 sweet, a hard thing about Appalachian cooking, man. This is one thing that I've been trying to nerd out on and try and really figure into is where, and I, I don't want this to get like. I don't want to say like political in any way, but like there are a lot, there's a lot of um, uh, immigrant influence into a lot of parts of Appalachian cooking. Like in West Virginia, like there's a lot of Italian immigrants that like, like we're all over coal mines. I mean, that's where like the pepperoni roll came from. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of thing. So there's a lot of like from different countries, like immigrant influence into a lot of Appalachian cooking. And then there's a lot of like, hardcore 
you know, fucking, you know, like old, um, you know, families, American families have been here for like generations and stuff like you, that. So you like, can look at uh, even even some of the immigrant stuff has been around for centuries, like uh, Kentucky and the sort of that that part of that part of the region. Uh, the tradition of mutton barbecue came from having a big yeah. influx of Welsh and Western English. Absolutely, you know, like Western England is is like England's country. Like uh, you know, instead of talking like the guys in Lockstock and Two Stock smoking, smoking, bleh, instead good of talking, movie. Instead of talking like the guys in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, they talk like like Hagrid from Harry Potter. Like, yeah. uh, that, that, so that 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 country influence brought. Have you ever had mutton barbecue? No, it's one of my da- oh. dishes that I gotta have. Mutton barbecue and awesome. And their barbecue sauce is black, and it's based on Worcestershire sauce. And I, it's one of those things I gotta try. My favorite Appalachian dish of all. And it's, I associate it with, uh, you know, the Carolina Piedmont and the uh, foothills walking into the mountains is Brunswick stew. Brunswick stew is one of my absolute Brunswick favorite stew, foods. Baby. And Brunswick yeah. stew is, is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about, like, cuisine from what's around. Because it's, like, wild onions, herbs, canned tomato, uh, maybe some corn, some butter beans if you can get them. And then all that built around whatever you shot. So you can do it with, uh, you know... Squirrel, rabbit, uh, small game birds, uh, and it's most of the times it gets made with chicken now because that's what's cheap, and Brunswick stew should be cheap. But uh, it's it's such a huge part of Central and Western North Carolina cooking to the extent that I used to have it at my school lunch every other day, and when I moved to Illinois, people did not know really? what I was talking about. The Brunswick stew is unknown in the north. Have you ever heard of burgoo? Burgoo, yes, and I'm not completely clear on what it is. That's the well. There's there's some haze between Brunswick stew and burgoo soup. Yeah, because like I, bur- yeah, I could totally see that. <laughs> yeah, because like burgoo is like technically like different game meats. Like I mean, you usually see like rabbit, squirrel, raccoon, that kind of thing. Like that's multiple- another like Kentucky mountain thing, isn't it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I know it's an Appalachian thing, so I, I think I think it was I think I read about a lot of it within like West Virginia uh, culture. Okay. But- I could totally see it being a Kentucky thing. I mean, just if I could just say one thing, Moonlight Barbecue in Kentucky is like the king of mutton barbecue. Like if you're Moonlight ever in Barbecue. Kentucky, I'm looking at We're going. It's happening. Yeah, that, that's where the mutton barbecue's at. But okay. yeah, like there's How there's, far there's is a, that from you? I, probably I, I guess about 8 hours. Oh shit. Okay. That means it's really <laughs> really really far from us, dog. Uh, you're you're 8 hours, dude. Like we Okay, like, so it's about the same. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, not, that, oh, yeah. that kind of ties into my question, the Brunswick stew. So is Appalachian cooking, is it a lot of like one pot meals and like Dutch oven kind of style or like? Well, yeah. Uh, and yeah. It, it has to do with the, um, the, the, yeah. the, the physical isolation. Like uh, even like wood burning stoves were relatively common, even in relatively urban homes in, in like central and Western North Carolina, like as in, I lived in a house that had a wood-burning stove when I was a kid. We had a modern kitchen, too, but the modern kitchen had not been there as long as the wood-burning stove. And my family used it as a heater. It was this ratty old house in this banged-up old neighborhood in North Carolina, and we had a real wood stove. And uh, it was screaming hot, and I was terrified of it because I was, like, six years old. But, uh, yeah, that thing, that thing, you know, the, the, there was a time, like, if you're up on the mountain, are you going to be able to get gas lines? Maybe not. And... Uh, I think up until relatively recently, are you going to be able to get electricity? Probably not. Like up until 
maybe less than a hundred years ago, less than a century ago, if you were on the side, if you were on the mountainside, you got your water from the stream, your heat from a fire. And if you're getting your heat from a fire, that means a lot of, a lot of barbecuing and a lot of uh, one pot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Outdoor cooking and then log cabin cooking. Like it's, it's a, uh, it's really informed by geography. Any cuisine that's from a mountainous area is going to be a little bit like that. Like look at how, in the Pyrenees Mountains, the Basque region has kind of remained its own thing for a very, very long time. Yeah. You know, their language, the Basque language, doesn't stem from Indo-European roots. Really? They're right between French and Spain, France and Spain, and their language isn't particularly related to French or Spanish. Isn't that nuts? Really? No, I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Two well, that, huge facts from old Jesse brain here, the octopus and now this. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm uh, regurgitating useless knowledge is basically my specialty. But I mean, I, to, just to add to your point, like there's, <clears throat> it's a style of cooking that ra that ranges over a great span of area. So like, there are different things that are in season at certain times, there are certain things that grow in places that don't grow in others. I mean, mm -hmm. you might see leather, leather britches down south, but not so much farther up north, you know? Yeah, the, cool, all man. of my knowledge of Appalachian cuisine just stems from growing up in the Carolina foothills for the first 10 years of my life and knowing some hillbillies. Either yeah. you guys got any books you could recommend on that subject? Ooh, yeah. Uh, but I can't remember the names off the top of my head. I, I can. But they're like out of print blog. rare stuff or. Yeah. There, I got a couple that are, that are pretty rare, but I got a couple that aren't, I, I could send them to you so you can put them on the blog. Yeah, or something. I, got, I got a really good book. There. I got a really good book that anyone can find. Um, it is a uh, Bill Neal's Southern cooking. Have you guys heard of uh, Bill Neal? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. He was the chef of Crook's Corner in uh, Chapel Hill, Carborough. And uh, he was kind of the Southern Rick Bayless in the sense that, yeah, he was a chef, but he also was a researcher and he did uh, cookbooks that were all about cataloging a region. It's not strictly uh, Appalachian cooking. He does cooking from Appalachia. He does cooking from the low country, uh, cooking from the deep South, like all over the South. But the recipes are solid and easy to follow. They may need a little tweak, but he was a good chef and apparently by all accounts a very cool guy uh and authentic stuff very 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 authentic like he covers like south carolina peanut soup you know Ooh. he has a recipe for like you know corn pone fried and bacon fat and I see you doing something like that jesse man i i mean i that's kind of what the blog is trying to be i just don't ever put enough time into it because <laughs> i'm too busy put too busy pouring drinks for raving animals but um <laughs> and then if uh, apart from uh Apart from Bill Neal's Southern Cooking, there's two other good books uh, that are related to him. I did a book on Southern baking called Biscuits, Spoonbreads, and Sweet Potato Pie. And then he did, uh, there was a book called Remembering Bill Neal that came out after he died. The thing is, the food in these books is like Junior League cookbook food, you know, the, like with those old like Junior League cookbooks, except the difference is that the recipes are clearly written and they work. So nice. if, you, if, you wanna, if you want to learn Southeastern cooking from, with recipes that really do look sort of homegrown, homespun, but not have to figure out what Ethel Bernice Underwood meant when she meant five spoons of oleo in a book, a, a recipe card that she typed in 1929, then uh, the Bill Neal books are really good. That's awesome. Not strictly, not strictly, I've never heard of him. Not strictly limited to, uh, not strictly limited to Appalachia, but I would also say uh, Edna Lewis's book is good. She's from Northern Virginia. And then I'm reading right now, uh, a Gift of Southern Cooking by Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock, and it's kind of the best of both worlds. I'll do a full, a full review on the on the uh, on the blog. Once again, it's kind of pan Southern. And it yeah, this one book that's based off of all the foods of civil of the Civil War. Ooh, 
um that's that that pertains to like the um the southeast um that's that's pretty interesting there's some there's a lot of like you know appalachian cooking stuff in there i mean they they dig into a lot of forged things like you know the old chicory root coffee trick but it, like chicory root used in a, a whole bunch of other things like it's pretty interesting do you what's the title of that one i think it's called the civil war cookbook i okay. don't quote me on it, but yeah I'll, it's something like that i'll throw a link on the blog like i always do um, and yeah. then, yeah, like the Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock's book, I can't necessarily recommend it yet, but it's very interesting. I just haven't, I haven't started testing the recipes out of it. And I don't like to recommend cookbooks until I know the recipes work. I'm in the salad chapter right now and it's pretty church picnicky. Like every single yeah. salad dressing has at least two tablespoons of sugar in it. Like, you know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if, I don't know if this one's necessarily the thing yet, but uh, it's definitely been a fun read so far and very educational. But once again, the stuff I'm talking about is not strictly Appalachia. That's awesome, man. Oh, and there's, yeah. a, there's a book Sorry. I bought. There's a book I bought but haven't read yet called Victuals. Uh, it's called, it's pronounced Vittles, but it's- I got awesome. that. Have yeah. you read it? Yeah, it's a good book. It's been a while, but yeah. Like, that's the first time I was like, the fuck is Victuals? And then I found out that's what Vittles yeah. is spelled like, yeah. Yeah, S stupid non-country people with their pronouncing of the letters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, man, I'm, I'm a hillbilly. I can say it. Uh, that, that book is pretty Appalachia-heavy, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think I think it has a lot of lot to do with just the basically like southern influence, but yeah, there's a lot of Appalachian stuff. There. I'll, it's, I'll it's put pretty... I'll put a link to all these titles up, and if anybody's interested, they can read more about them because I feel like we're being kind of vague. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, you know, it's not a subject that gets a ton written on it. Yeah. You got any other questions, man? Let's fucking do it. That's it for questions. Uh, what else are you gonna do? Well, I had a I had a one little side note that was a continuation of our discussion from last last time. Uh, Tarver, you weren't here for it. Did you listen to the episode yet? I just started. I got like 10 minutes in, dude. Okay. Um, well, we got to talking about um, hostesses and how they're such an important part of the team. And yeah. and Amer like in America, they're, they're entry-level employees, usually teenage girls or girls in their early 20s with almost no restaurant experience. And how crazy it is that such an absolutely pivotal position uh, is underfunded and undertrained because a bad hostess can just destroy your day your very first impression except except for like the walk up you know i mean that's yeah. pretty much it well and then if if the hostess seats the dining room improperly they can cause fights among the servers they can piss off regular customers uh and they can destroy the kitchen's life destroy yeah destroy. And, and at the same time i mean like i've seen you know hosts or hostesses who are at the whim of an owner who is you know looking at his pocket rather rather than how well service runs oh totally so uh, you take a separate you know, issue but... has, like no experience at all and they're just like seat everyone all the while like my buddy logan who we've talked to you know what are my buddy our buddy logan when he was in dc Th like, thundar the barbarian thundar the barbarian exactly <laughs> like, he was in dc what the hell was the name of it i think it was like, it was like a gin joint new heights um new heights yeah yeah you ate there yeah it's good um that owner put Logan through the ringer, man. I mean, like buses would show up and this poor host or hostess that would just be like, you know, 60 people just walked in, you know, and then they have the wrath of, you know, Logan the fucking Minotaur and all these <laughs> servers, you know, like, that, you know. Yeah, well, that's I, actually one of the things we talked about was how much crap hostesses take. Like, they're usually the youngest and most generally female population, like group, in the uh in the restaurant 
And that's a group of people that gets pushed around by old people pretty bad. And they're the ones that pushed have to around. Say no. But there's also another side of it where there's the experienced, like the extremely experienced host or hostess oh, that yeah. knows all the VIPs and the like the like anyone who wants to get into that restaurant that they can never get into, it all comes down to that host or hostess. That, yeah, that's not, the first thing. Yeah. I'm not Kinda talking like about yeah, that's, that's like what you get through a Vader D. That's yeah. a, good, a good hostess is a Mater D in my opinion. But the thought that I had when, when I was editing it, I was like, oh, yeah, what about this? And I didn't say anything. I haven't talked about it on the air. What do you guys, have you guys ever had to deal with a manager of the ascended hostess type? By which I mean a hostess that saw that the servers made more money, but just never had the wherewithal to become a server or never had the hustle to become a server. And then just worked at the same restaurant for like five years and got promoted to an assistant manager spot because they didn't want to pay somebody better. No. Really? I don't think so. That I mean, a, I'd have to think about it, but I don't think so. That is a common type in sort of middle-of-the-road restaurants. And they just, it's like, yeah. it's its one of those situations where, um, the, like, one of your most mediocre employees, that being the hostess that was never able to push past and become a server, never had the hustle to do a couple of food-running shifts, but was just around for long enough that they got to know the system well enough that uh, they became a manager. Those can be some of the some of the weakest managers I've seen in the restaurant. And it reminded me of, a, there's a business principle. I don't remember the name of the principle, but it talked about how the paradox of, uh, the paradox of promotion was that you're always gonna get promoted to your level of incompetence. As in, as you move up, as you do well at a job, you'll move up to the next rung, then you'll move up to the next rung, and then you move up to the next rung until you get to one where you don't do well enough to get promoted. A job you're not as good at as you were at the previous job. And that's, so it was basically talking about on organizations, there's a ton of people at jobs that they're not quite great at because they've been good at everything so far. And uh, it made me think about your know, restaurant managers. And I've been one, like I've been, I was not a particularly solid restaurant manager because, you know, I just, I'd, I'd done everything else that you're supposed to do. And then when I got to the top, I didn't exactly have the tools to su succeed. And, uh, you know, it's, and then you see uh, the ascended hostess is another one where it's like, you know, she'll become an assistant manager. And it's, I say, I shouldn't say she, uh, your ascended hostess will like, I'm, once again, we're using the gendered term hostess just because the, the role is overwhelmingly female. I've worked for a few male hosts, but it it's like a 95%, 5% split. But you'll get this host or hostess that's gotten to the point where they're an assistant manager and they're never going to move past that. Yeah, they, 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 they've never worked the floor. They just, they, they know the host stand really well. And then they end up a shift leader and then they're not able to move past it and be and be something more than a shift leader. And as a result, they end up like bitter and resentful. And it's just it's it's something that well, I've seen. And their authorities already their authorities compromised to begin with, because like in the military, if you get promoted, you move, you know, battalions or platoons or whatever. You don't have to manage the people that are your buddies. Really? Right. That's that's smart. They automatically move you to a different unit. And like, where, yeah. you know, okay, seen, you're good enough to be a sergeant now, but you're going to be the sergeant of that group over there, not these guys. And I've seen the that makes sense. I've seen real success stories with the uh, the uh, with the ascended uh, hostess. Like, uh, yeah, Steph, Steph from 492 is a great example. She was basically the party planner, and uh, I mean, at least by the time I got there, she was fully capable of running the place on my day off. Uh, and uh, when I had to take all that time off in 2018, she was there. 
And uh, so I'm not talking about every hostess that comes up. I'm just talking about the one specific type of manager that's yeah. that's gotten promoted into a role that they're not particularly good at. And the way the way we set up our the way we set up our entire labor model creates that problem. Like I feel like if I had a restaurant, I would put a ton of energy into training the hostesses and then find ways for them to get compensated, you know? Like I feel like it, it, it would, maybe this is a pipe dream, but I wouldn't want to, if I had my choice, I wouldn't want to hire a hostess that wasn't capable of being a shift leader because their job is so important. And because if they don't know what they're doing, they can absolutely destroy the service. Like, you know what we used to do, man? And like, I, 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 this had faults, don't get me wrong. And we had to figure out like a sort of pay scale for it all, but we would rotate um, all servers through that role that's a great like, idea it, it worked it ended up working it, it didn't work at first i'll tell you that straight up and if anyone that has worked no, for me in the past that I has think, been through this was like fucking suck i think that's a great idea because it avoids someone just getting into a pigeonhole and never yeah. learning learn, learning past the job well, it's just the, like being in the kitchen being cross-trained exactly. and you're more versatile and Exactly. Yeah, no, I think and you understand. So like all, oh, server, oh, man, like, that's not as easy as it looks. Yeah, every server was a food runner. Every server was a hostess. And like it just rotated and rotated and rotated. But like, you know, we didn't have turnover for years. It ended up working out. We just had to figure out the bugs as far as like pay scales and all yeah, that right. kind of and stuff. The way, like, the way FOH gets paid in the US makes that complicated, complicated. complicated. Very. Well, like, I think they get a, paid well, but like they they want every last fucking penny, man. That's Bad. such a good idea. As a tipped employee, I corroborate that. Um, yeah. th that's such a great idea, making every server just do a rotation on host. Because the problem is, like a lot of places, the servers hate the hostesses because the host they think they're playing favorites. They see every little table they don't get as a slight, and the hostesses hate the servers because the servers are always busting their balls. This happens at so many different places. At one place that someone I know worked, the servers were actually not allowed to approach the host stand. Like the host stand was on one end of the bar and the dining room was on the other end of the bar and the servers were not allowed to walk across the bar to the host stand because so many of the servers were just browbeating the hosts, trying to get the best tables. If they all had to do it for each other, if that, that's, a, such, that's such a brilliant idea. I'm glad we talked about this. I, you know, that's- It worked. I, there's one place that I know of, um, Moto in Chicago, they would train all of their servers. It was, wasn't much of a serving job because Moto was tasting menu only and they just had three different tasting menus. So it was basically how many courses are you having? And then the wine pairings were already set. So they didn't have to do much. They were just like three tastings with wine. Like it was way less actual service. And then they just bring the things out and explain them. And I think he found that having cooks do that meant that they were a little more excited about the cool tricks and that they wouldn't screw them up. <laughs> And then, so they all just yeah. took turns, like the, the staff. And guests love it because they get asked the cooks questions, you know, like, yeah. how did you do that or whatever? I actually uh -huh. didn't know that my, like my server was good. I didn't know that he was a kitchen guy until way later, a friend of mine got a job there and explained to me that that's how they did it. And I was like, I don't know if that's how they always did it, but my server was polished. He was good. He was really, really, really funny too. Uh, he told that's us, awesome. he knocked a glass of champagne over on D and she's like, He's like, I'm so sorry. And she goes, it happens. I'm a server. I've knocked glasses of champagne over on plenty of people. And he's like, I'll bring you a new glass. Is there anything else I can do to make it up for you? And she said, yeah, tell me a funny work story. And he's like, all right. I was tending a bar at this one place. This lady's just sitting at the bar, breaking my balls, telling me I'm not shaking enough, telling me I'm using the wrong kind of bitters. And I look at her and say, hey, lady, I don't come to your office and tell you how to do your job. And the lady goes, I'm going to speak to your manager. 
He says, all right, good. If you can find her, if will you tell her I need fives? <laughs> so yeah, I think that the whole idea of avoiding avoiding uh, people going into a pigeonhole and only becoming competent at one thing, and then you have to promote them. Like you ever had somebody that's worked for you so long, you have to either promote them or look for a way to get rid of them, and yeah. you just like somebody that's right there on the margin, just mediocre. A little cross training, increasing people's utility. If they're not good enough, they'll weed themselves out. And if they are good enough, then you were wasting them this whole time. It's such a great idea. I'm, I'm glad we brought this back up because that- Yeah, I'm all about versatility. I'm also all about relying on your strengths, but you need to man- learn to manage your weaknesses. And right. that's that's where the tr- cross training comes in. Like I might be a really great saute cook, but I'm only okay on the grill, but I've learned to manage that. So if someone calls out, I can do it. Right, I like, might not be the best at it in the restaurant, but I can do it. Like when, you when know, things at, like that. It's really good. When I was at Burwell's, I had this one girl guy, and he was a warlock. Like he was insane, but he was awesome. And he never missed a temp. He never dropped the steak. He always had just what he needed. And and this is the best part. If you found out that he dropped a steak, he would just lie to you t- and tell you that he had it, and then give you a different steak off a different tray that was resting and get the other one cooked and rested by the time you needed it. So he, he knew all the dirty tricks and he would use them to his full advantage. I never had an issue with grill when he was on there. And this was at a steakhouse where we were serving 90% steaks. The yeah. guy was an absolute badass. He was fun to work with. He's a funny guy. But just because you've got that doesn't mean you can't train anyone else on grill. Because yeah. if he breaks his <laughs> leg or gets pissed and quits, then then you've got a bad problem. And that's I think that's what Nate's talking about is that yep. a lot of times a chef will get like the stone cold badass who's been doing this for the last nine, 10 months and no one else has done it. You got people going in cold on a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I think that you talk about managing your weaknesses. That's great. I mean, I, you guys have both yelled at me for saying this in the past, but I'm not a particularly good line cook. I'm a very good garmage and I'm an incredible prep cook uh, in terms of like deep projects and stuff like that. On the line, my plates look good. I just don't look good doing it. And uh, but nevertheless, the fact the fact that I was willing to move through stations where I wasn't very comfortable and really focus on them is the only reason I was able to get to like my first sous chef position. It's it's not about being perfect at everything. It's about being competent right. in everything. Well said. I'm right, dude. You're all about it. And I worked for a couple of chefs who like Tarver's one of them. If you said you couldn't do something, nope, you can and you will. Uh, and uh, you keep doing that thing until you get it. Yeah, and uh, that I've, I've worked for a few chefs that have had that attitude. Like I worked with this one guy, and I was like, I just can't, I just can't slice the smoked salmon thin enough. And the thing is, I still suck at it. I still absolutely suck at it. Like actually slicing a side of smoked salmon, that's not easy to do, man. Even if you it's have a great, even if you have a great knife, and even if you know what you're doing, that's my one, like one of my big prep bugaboos. That is a project that scares me. I'll turn two cases of artichokes in 20 minutes, but I, I I'm scared of slicing smoked salmon. And this chef, his name was Darren. He was the chef of cuisine at Jackie's. He was just merciless. He was like, no, that's not thin enough. Do it again. And he didn't care how close service was or how much other prep I had to do. It was just, that's not good enough. Do it again until, until it was good enough. And, you know, expectation, uh, like weakness managed. I, I still suck yeah. at it, but I got good enough at it that I could get through, yeah, you can get that get through a shift. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. That's a great thought. You know, I'm glad because when I was when I was thinking about the ascended hostess thing, I was like, "This is just one of the most mediocre types of managers I've seen." I'm thinking of several specific ones, but it's a type that's repeated. And I was just kind of, 
going to make some jokes about it. But then this turned into a conversation where we really talked about a way to solve that problem. That was great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry, guys. Yeah, I got to jump pretty soon. Well, next time we all three of us get together, we're we doing the pancake episode. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about pancakes. Or if any listeners out there have any other suggestions about, we want to start doing maybe like a little segment, maybe once a week about basic cooking techniques or, you know, recipes, and we'll just bounce ideas off each other. How do you make, you know, how do you make, you know, biscuits or pancakes or yeah. how do you make, you know, whatever, mashed potatoes? How do you boil an egg? Yeah. How do you boil? boil? Exactly. Yeah. All right, cool. So it could just be like little, little, you know, boot camp. Then let's brain uh, brainstorm. <laughs> let's 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 commit to doing that. One of those the next time, even if if one of us isn't around, we could the other two of us could still do yeah, the same thing. Yeah, we'll just do it something yeah. fun. A lot of people are asking more simple stuff. Yeah, well, and they want to know how we do it though. Probably, for probably some odd reason, the, uh, I don't know. <laughs> they, they probably they probably asked us that after listening to the uh, Tarver and Jesse design a menu in real time segment. That's, we should do like, that again though man we should do that all three of us that though, was for real. a ton yeah. of fun yeah uh, for real. You know, we, okay so we designed a tasting menu a theme tasting menu and that was cool if we wanted to do a virtual we could design a virtual restaurant menu that'd whole be cool thing, whole thing we could do a multi-parter no way we could do it in one episode yeah like no way. that would be a cool <laughs> that would be a cool and fun project you know just thought experiment out because we don't we, we've, we've all done it a thousand times it'd be cool to do one as, as a team what kind of re, what kind that'd of restaurant awesome. would we have um, okay, well, we got some we got some great ideas, but uh, keep them coming too, yeah. please. But uh, you know, we're gonna do the stuff we like. Yeah, we just love like. talking about food and just all day long. Yeah, we're like this is this is just this is just the best hobby in the world. This is arguing. About yeah. food. It's it sucks that we don't have like a reco- recording engineer to maintain our equipment and do the editing and not break the microphones, but you know. Well, we're figuring it out little by little. And for the for the 49 of you who uh, who listen to us on a semi-regular basis, and yes, I have stats on these things, thank you so much for checking it out. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you, yes. Love you guys. Uh, it's quite touching. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I probably know 47 of you. Right. I, I feel like uh, <laughs> over 49 listeners, it's just um, my buddy Tom, his uh, friend in Bra- from Brazil, who I think his name is Ricardo, and then... Nate's like 47 Facebook friends. <laughs> ah, that's, it's a great hobby. Yeah, that's, there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of uh, industry guys. There's one guy that uh, comes in and has drinks at my bar that uh, he walked in, he sat down the other day, and uh, he's like, I listened to the podcast, Waitress Cobra. And I was like, shit. <laughs> I had not anticipated that little wrinkle. <laughs> oh, man. It was good. It was good fun. <laughs> That's all right, awesome. Well, all right. Love we, you guys. We're, we're on very limited time today. Uh, so uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. This is going to be great because the fast ones are so much easier to edit. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. They're easy to listen to, too, man. They're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Tarver Super King Kings, say, say goodnight, Tarver. Good night, Tarver. I, I, <laughs> I was worried you weren't going to do that. And uh, for uh, Nate Spin Cake Whiting. I am the mouth of the South, the waitress Cobra, Jesse Sutton. <laughs> I feel like such a D-bag every time I do this. Uh, Speakeasy is going to play us out of here. Thank you all so much for listening. Love you, dudes. Love you. Yeah. Come on, come on, come on, little baby. My little darling, my little sister. Come on, baby, just keep your head up.